0: Welcome everybody to episode number 43 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, August the 31st, 2022. My name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank everyone who tuned in last time with our guest Chris Ivey from Heritage Auctions. You can see that episode on the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel as well as the Collectible App YouTube channel. Also, want to welcome and let everyone know we are streaming for the, for the very first time from the Sports Cards Live channel, from Collectible Live to both LinkedIn and Twitch. So if you are watching on there, welcome to the show. We do also stream to YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. But enough of that, we are going to bring out this week's guest. He is the founder and CEO of Alton Insights, Russ Lieberman. Welcome to Collectible Live. How are you doing, my guy? Jeremy, I'm good. How are you? I am good. I am good. It is it is great to have you. We're going to start off the episode as we always do with the discussion. Then we're going to look at some of the uh, assets on the collectible platform. And Russ, we haven't even mentioned this even in preparation, but we had dinner together at the Golden Dinner at the 2021 National. I believe we sat across from each other for a few minutes there, maybe in, at the time of dessert and uh, got to meet you then and one of your partners. So uh, that was cool. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. We, I thought that we was... We dropped the ball and I'm
1: making this happen sooner, but I'm glad we're doing it now.
0: Yeah, we're doing it now, which is great. I want to thank Ezra for arranging. Ezra, the CEO of Collectible, and bringing you on. To everyone in the chat, welcome to the show. If you have questions or comments for what we're talking about, anything you want to ask Russell, throw it in there. We'll get to as many of those as we can. Speaking of Ezra, Russ, I want to know, Tell tell me the story about how you first heard from Ezra when he first found out about Alton insights.
1: Yeah. Quick backstory. Um, in, I guess the summer of 2020. So still, still pretty early for Alton as well. I started Alton in March of 2020. Um, at that point it was just really a, a blog and a Twitter handle, but collectible followed Alton and and reached out and, uh, DM'd us and said, "Hey, my name's Ezra Levine. I'm launching a fractional marketplace focused on sports cards and sports memorabilia. Uh, we're launching, you know, at the end of the summer. Uh, it would be great to connect with you." And uh, I wrote back, "Ezra, we used to work together. Uh, so, so funny little connection there uh, that we both found our way into the fractional industry. Uh, and Collectible has been a great partner." Of-
0: All right. It's it's nice how the world can be small that way. And because you have that built-in rapport already. It's not like you need to introduce, he doesn't need to explain to you too much about what it is or convince you who he is. You know him. And uh it makes uh, you know businesses relationships, and that uh it must have been nice for you guys to have a built-in relationship already. Before we get into hearing from you, Russ, about how you first got started in the hobby, a bit about your hobby history. Quick hello to uh this is Fowl Five Ball. His name is Jeremy, met him at the at the Burbank show last week, and uh, one of the nicest guys I met. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show, Russ. Let's uh, let's hear from you a bit about you know you got started in the in the '90s. Uh, take us through when you got started to to around 2019. I know that's kind of a a bit of a story. So, why don't you fill us in on into your your hobby history?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm an '80s baby, so uh, I grew up loving mostly baseball cards growing up. I used to go to a store called Card Dog in Cambridge, Massachusetts growing up. It's no longer there, unfortunately. Um, but just had an obsession with baseball cards, particularly 90s inserts, which remain the best inserts that there ever were. Uh, 1996, for example, cards, uh, card sets like Flair Showcase, uh, 1996 EX 2000. Um, those sets just blew my mind as a 10 year old and uh revisiting now being able to afford that more than i could when i was obviously 10 years old as a kid has been has been fun too but uh we can can get more into uh, the price of sports cards later but uh, i I didn't find my way back until um around 2019 when i was first poking around fractional marketplaces and seeing what they were offering um seeing how some of these cards had appreciated and um yeah, that's when boxes of Panini Prism and other products started showing up in my house. My wife was like, "What? what is going on here? Uh, we're, we're, we've been back in the hobby since 2019. So uh, having a blast.
0: What What prompted you to get back? I mean, you, 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 you took time off for high school, college a few years go by. 2019 happens. What specifically brought you back into the hobby, if you can recall?
1: Yeah, it, it was really a confluence of factors. It was... Uh, first just seeing fractional marketplaces like Rally and Otis that had popped up and were offering um, these alternative assets I'm, you know, I've always been a collector at heart and, and seeing them, seeing the values of these cards um, sort of blew my mind to, to re-engage with the hobby um, and then start partaking, obviously myself. Um, and then, you know, 2020, similar story of everyone being locked at home. Uh, is when I really like truly dove back in. Uh, I was already buying a little product here and there, but um, you know, going back through my old collection and I, I'm sure if you're on this, if you're listening, you've heard this story before.
0: Yeah, so for sure, uh, it's it, it's not it's not a rare one. It's a, it's a common occurrence right now. Let's talk about Alton Insights, your company. I think first it might be smart uh, just for the audience and everybody. Can you explain what Alton Insights is? First, and then we'll get into kind of what, uh, what brought you to starting it.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, Alton Insights is a data research and analytics platform um, that offers investment uh, tools, research to help guide alternative asset investment strategies. Uh, we started in the fractional world. So uh, what we created was the first tool that allowed someone to look across marketplaces and across asset classes across these marketplaces and, and spot trends and see how different um, assets by whatever theme um, or sector were performing. Uh, and you know, I, I basically saw a gap in the market that uh, was sort of an aha moment in seeing that all these reg A plus fractionalized alternative assets You know, collectible rally, et cetera. These are exchanges for these securities. uh, And for for this to turn into a true asset class, I felt like uh, you needed a Bloomberg-like product, which is, uh, you know, my 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 former life.
0: Well, let's get into your former life. Tell us a little. I mean, you you've started the company Alton based. You know, it is what you just described. What's sort of the story behind starting it? and, And and I guess what are your credentials, your experience that led you to be qualified to start this company and know what it takes to, to build it out?
1: Yeah. So just a quick background on on my career. I started my career at Bloomberg, um, back in 2010, that's where Ezra and I crossed paths, uh, briefly, um, at Bloomberg I was responsible for covering broker dealers in New York city. At one point I had access to, and was covering the New York stock exchange, um, so, really, got an inside look at the go-to data and research fintech platform for Wall Street. Uh, from there, I joined a company called Ready, which was Goldman Sachs's execution management platform. So, if you were a hedge fund, for example, and you prime bro- Goldman was your prime broker, you would send your order flow, options, futures, and equities over Ready to Goldman. Um, ready spun out to be broker agnostic. So you could, it wasn't Goldman specific anymore and it ended up getting acquired by Reuters. Uh, so then I was sort of back at Bloomberg, uh, made, made my way to uh, NYU for an MBA. And then as I was looking for my next gig is when I noticed uh, Masterworks, for example, required you to have your series 63 and 67, uh, and seven, which i had had from my time in Wall Street FinTech. And, uh, and Otis was hiring, Nip, which is now public.com. Was hiring for a head of investor relations. Uh, was fascinated with what Rally was bringing to the table. So, um, it, instead of applying to one of those places, I ended up creating a tool that I saw a need for in in that same market.
0: So, what was kind of the first the first asset or the the first collectible that you covered uh, under the Alton banner?
1: Yeah. So March of 2020. Um, Alton Insights just started with a, a blog post and a Twitter handle. Um, I saw a pair of Zion Williamson High School game worn sneakers that were set to IPO on Rally. And um, I, I, I loved what they were providing, but I felt like there would, you know, I could potentially help investors make a good decision as to whether or not they should jump into this IPO or not uh, by providing them with more data and, and information and just. Uh, provided an article that basically did did research, third party research for investors, and helped them, you know, decide whether or not they they were bullish on Zion.
0: So, okay, very cool. So, to to get Alton going, did you have to raise any money?
1: Uh, so, I bootstrapped Alton for the first year. Um, I again, I it started with just a blog and a Twitter handle, um, and. I, built, I used low-code tools to build our MVP, uh, which was sufficient from, I guess, like early summer of 2020 for, um, I guess, a, about a year. It had a search engine, uh, used Airtable so you can sort by asset class, look across marketplaces, sort by different returns, spot trends in our data. Um, I realized that just being a blog and a Twitter, I didn't want to just provide I didn't want to provide an opinion at all. I actually wanted to let the data speak for itself, uh, and we've tried to live by that to, uh, through today. We, you know, we are not offering any sort of um, buy or sell recommendations. We're providing the facts by, by providing the data. Um, so, anyways, after a year of bootstrapping Alton, uh, we raised a pre-seed round. We've since raised another seed round. Uh, so, you know, our team is up to nine people. We have a research team. Um, Dylan and Bradley, we have someone joining us from Sotheby's. Uh, Dylan has published a book on sneakers as an asset class. Uh, He was at Citibank prior, and Bradley's a registered appraiser. Uh, I was very happy to step aside on my commentary that I was providing and and let those effectively uh, professional alternative asset research analysts uh, take my spot as far as research and,
0: and content went. Yeah, no, sounds good. How did you how did you name the company? What does Alton mean?
1: Alton stands for alternative asset analysis.
0: Okay. Um, and then I just added the
1: insights because I thought that sounded a little better.
0: I thought people <laughs> yeah. would be yeah. It does. It it does sound good. It sounds very professional to me. I, I think the name is great. And you know, I you can refer to it as just Alton. Everyone knows what you're talking about, or Alton Insights just kind of rounds it out quite nicely. Uh, you just mentioned, you know, that it's you, you're, you're providing data. When I think about data services in the hobby, my mind goes straight to services like Card Ladder, Market Movers, uh, those types of things. I think Alt has one as well. Alt, mm-hmm. not Alton. Alt is its own uh, company in, in the space. So how do, how do you see Alton Insights um, existing, fitting into the space while there are these other tools in there? Are they complementary? Are they competitive? Can you just kind of let us know how you guys fit into that landscape?
1: Yeah, so um, if you come to our, our site today, we have an app,
0: and on our
1: app we we provide all the data you would possibly need for fractionalized assets. Um, so it can be pop reports, it can be you know a, a stock chart of their performance over time, uh, as much information as you could possibly need. Uh, the research reports that we're putting out actually use information from the services that you mentioned. Um, you know, we it, it, it's complimentary in that sense, in that Uh, We we appreciate and respect what what, what those teams have built, and uh, we're not trying to provide pricing on every single card. Uh, But we love the macro information that they provide, such as indices um, on our terminal, for example, we've aggregated alternative asset indices, um, which is fascinating that that doesn't exist. But we understand that there are services, whether it's in sports cards or wine or art, that already exist that track these markets. Uh, What we're trying to do is because we look at multi-asset classes, what we're trying to do is aggregate uh, sources to the best of our ability. So if you're looking at alternative assets as a whole, um, you know, we can be a central hub for you to come and and make your investment decisions using uh, the data that both we've we've sourced from others and provided.
0: Okay, no, good stuff right there. I want to just uh, address a couple of comments, first of all. Chris Mulders, YYC in the house. That's where I am. I'm also YYC. That's Calgary. Good to see you, Chris. Uh, Woford in the house. Howdy to you. And then uh says right here, catching a few minutes by chance, but quick shill tips the hat to Russ. Alton's Grails podcast is hosting some of the most mature thesis dialogue on market nuance. Highly recommend everyone tune in 10 out of 10. That's there you go. That's a, that's a, a nice testimonial right there for what you're doing. I'm, Definitely gets me to want to go add it to my podcast uh, list and I will definitely do that. So thanks for that, uh, Woford. Yeah. So So where do you see Alton going? I mean, obviously you've described kind of what the service is. Do you have a a vision or a mission as to kind of where you want to take Alton Insights over the next, you know, 12, 24 months and, and, and beyond?
1: Yeah, we want to help someone who's either investing or collecting alternative assets uh, navigate that landscape fractional and beyond. Uh, so I would tell you that the beyond is really what we're, we're hoping to dive into. Um, we, today, as I mentioned, our platform is very fractional, and uh, specific, but our content is much more, uh, we incorporate auction houses, for example. So, uh, we, what happened is about a year and a half ago or so, Goldman, Gold In, I'm sorry, reached out to us and said, we like this financial lens content that you you know your team is providing around the fractional space. And we would love for you to provide this uh, to the auction world. Uh, and that's what we've begun doing. So uh, we've got some really fun stuff in the background that we're putting together as far as data that we have from auction houses. Um, I won't say too much on this, but we want to help investors make informed decisions when they're making a large purchase or just trying to you know put Two to four percent of their net worth into these speculative assets. We want we want to help. We want to build the tool that allows them to do that um, intelligently.
0: Okay, no that, that sounds really good. Uh, quick hello to Jerry Hodge. Good evening to you. Um, so, I was going to uh, I was going to kind of bring this up a little bit later, but you just mentioned helping investors. So, I guess the question that I have for you and this is going to be kind of you drawing on your insights into the hobby, into the participants in the hobby is, you know, we always, we talk about the hobby talks about all these values that we're seeing lately. And we've got investors in the hobby. We've got flippers in the hobby. We've got collectors in the hobby. I kind of think that you've got a, you have a spectrum of, you know, collector, investor, nobody's on the, I don't maybe some rare person is on 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 either extreme end, but all of us are somewhere along that spectrum. Uh, flippers, I think, fall along that spectrum. You, you, you're a flipper, you're investing in something to to make money on it. It's an investment to a degree. So my question is, you know, is it the collectors or the investors who who provide the foundational value, the foundation for value for these assets, these collectibles, they don't they don't provide any spin-off income you know that you you can't you can't rent them out they right. don't spin off dividends they don't spin off any interest they are just uh they're just a, a an asset that has no spin-off income and they don't really provide any utility outside of emotional value which uh, i'm i'm a sucker for that you know i get a lot of emotional value uh, utility there from uh, from my collectibles but is it collectors or is it investors? You think that pro- that that provide this foundation for the values that we're seeing recently? It's a great question.
1: Um, it's it's. I think the answer is somewhere in between. And I think that um, again, anyone that's listening to this podcast is probably somewhere in between. I, I, I'm a collector in, in one sense. Uh, I'm not banking on this Paul Pierce signed jersey. He's he's. You know, his post-career life, he's been kind of a jerk getting fired from ESPN. Uh, this isn't on my wall because I'm excited about the, you know, the value that it's going to bring me one day. As an investment, it, it's there just because I collect Paul Pierce memorabilia because I'm a fan. Uh, and then in another sense, there there are assets that I think, um, you know, being around this every day, it, it's, it's very clear, for example, that certain assets are undervalued. And there's no reason to not make an investment, even though, uh, you know, I, I don't need that. I, I don't need that asset in, in my life forever. I can, you know, separate the two. So it's tough. I mean, I know uh, you and I were chatting a bit about the the conundrum of sp- uh, collectors and, and investors and collectors getting priced out by investors, potentially. Um, it, it, you know, I, I would say I think it forces a choice between quantity and quality. You can still, as a collector buy blue chip assets you're just buying less um and you know if you're a collector like i said with paul pierce here on the wall you're you're not you're not chasing the money anyways um so you know another option is just uh collect at a lower tiers higher quantity and you know albeit you you won't have the same financial return most likely on on, on that set of cards or card or whatever it may be, uh, again, if you're a collector, that shouldn't be why you're in it in the first place, right? So I can pretty neatly separate those things in my mind. I know that might not be as easy for, for some of the collectors uh, listening.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of narrative that I hear just in in social media is that all of these assets, and I, we, I refer to them as assets, Joe, you know, during Collectible Live they're collectibles. They are, they're collectibles that are assets, but a lot of these assets, you know, they need to end up making their way to, I, I think they somewhat need to end up making their way to a collector who is going to value them highly and not give, not like, like lock them down for a decade or longer, you know, take them out of circulation. So that the next similar item that comes up is, is scarcer than the last one, because you go from two being available in the in the float down to one. So it's it's simple supply and demand in that case. Um, Just my thoughts on that. You mentioned, you know, lower tier, having access to lower tier, which makes me want to ask you the question. I ask everybody that comes on to collectible live, which is how do you see fractional investing via collectible and other platforms fitting into the overall hobby landscape? And the reason I'm, I'm kind of making this connection is because you can buy into a, 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle a copy of what of which just sold on Saturday for 12.6 million dollars you can buy into a copy on the collectible platform a share of one a fractionalized share of one for like $25 or or probably less even right now just because you know I'm not sure how many shares are outstanding but you can get into these things for you know sometimes they offer shares for $5, $10, $20, etc you can get into to these assets these collectibles for a lot less than you could if you had to dish out a million dollars, let's say, for a PSA 8 Mickey Mantle 52 top. So the question again, just to refocus this, is how do you see Fractional fitting in to the overall hobby landscape as we move forward?
1: Yeah, look, what Fractional has offered is is remarkable. Um, I think I think anyone that's investing on fractional marketplaces should do their diligence just like they would if they're making a stock investment. But what fractional is bringing to the table, uh, you mentioned the 52 mantle, Uh, even a lower grade, a PSA three and a half just sold at Heritage for $87,000, also a record. So, you know, you're (laughs) depending on who you are, most of us are not going to own this card uh fractionalization allows you to do the next best thing which is owning a piece of this card and uh the assets that they're providing are are, should be at least blue chip assets that over time i I think i want to emphasize uh longer time horizons when it comes to fractional uh over time has has shown to provide um, outsized returns to the rest of any alternative asset market the very top and obviously the best condition. So, um, you know, I, I think for, for that, uh, for providing that service fractional is, it, it's incredible. Um, and the fact that you can also, if you need liquidity sooner, I mentioned longer time horizon, but, um, you know, I think people get a little caught up on secondary market performance. I think if you're investing in one of these, not only should you be investing, understanding that, um, a fractional marketplace is a business and there is a markup typically over the last sale. And let's say that markup's 10%, you have to be in that investment uh, it, to know that you already need to make up 10%. You need to hold that asset for a certain amount of time. Um, and, and frankly, if, if it's not something that you want to hold for, for a longer time period, uh, you probably shouldn't be investing in fractional.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, John, John Shuck here agrees, says 10 years minimum, right? Long, and I'm personally with my collectible assets, when I purchase them, they are for, I'm like a 25 year old kind of horizon. I love these things. I, I want to hold them as long as I can. So I understand that. I want to, another nice testimonial here from John, basketball guard guy, says Russell is the best guy to talk to about market trends. He and his company do a brilliant job at tracking and reporting. Very nice, John. Thank you for popping in always good to see you uh, terry welcome to the show terry yeah good to have you on on a live uh so back to you know sticking with this fraction the, the discussion on fr- in fractional how it, how it fits in overall and you talked about liquidity a little bit one of the things i hear some people saying is as far as fractional goes is that you know there's not enough volume and liquidity on the secondary markets within these platforms like collectible and I wonder, like, why do you think that is? T- to me, it's like you know, <laughs> there's some good deals to be had. Yeah, purchasing a share of a collectible versus the whole collectible itself. You can again, you can buy a share for twenty five dollars instead of spending a million for the whole thing. So, what do you think it's going to take to drive more volume to these secondary pl- market platforms?
1: Yeah, I I think it's. I think there needs to also be an understanding that, um, you know, when, when pe- what people are used to when they're buying a, a security typically, um, you know, it's, let, let's use Apple stock, for example. Uh, it trades on multiple exchanges. You can log into any of your investment apps. You can buy and sell Apple stock. Um, that's frankly just not what, it, it, not what fractional is. Um, fractional is... Um, obviously like a micro cap stock uh, and and it's going to trade um it's it's a just a smaller market uh it's it's you know it's less liquid and and that's a little bit of the nature of the beast that's you know my we don't make recommendations but my recommendation would be uh, if you're if you're investing in fractional understand that a fractional marketplace is providing a service and you're having the ability to own something that you almost certainly wouldn't be able to afford individually, and um, you should be looking at that first off. You should be doing your diligence. So come to Alton Insights Quick Plug. Uh, do your diligence, and it, you know if you decide that this is an asset that you believe over time is going to appreciate, you should um, make the investment with that in mind. Um, I think when you see a dip to your point on the secondary market for something that's undervalued, as long as you're willing to buy that and and hold it, I think that's great. Uh, I think people are also sort of quick to forget how how big of a wins. Uh, you know, I understand we're in a bit of a bear market, so it's it's easy to forget all the goodness, right? Uh, but you know, there were days when Michael Jordan cards were IPOing on fractional marketplaces for forty thousand dollars when they were already selling on uh, selling at auction for eighty three, eighty six thousand uh, dollars, and look at them today. Um, collectible that one of the mammals on collectible um, the PSA eight that that card is up 170 percent from its IPO so you know I think it's easy to look at the market right now I think we've definitely seen a lot of paper hands on fractional marketplaces just like everywhere else look at crypto look at the stock market it's it's truly no different but um, yeah I would urge you you know While there is the rare case that you invest at IPO and your money doubles or triples or something when the asset begins trading, um, great, you know, take your short term win. But but when you're investing in an IPO, you should be investing with a long term uh, horizon in mind.
0: Yeah, no fair comments. And I do think that in time and, you know, but if you look at all the fractional companies out there. in time as there's more and more adoption to it as it becomes more normal for people to to uh transact in the sports card and, and memorabilia market via fractional whichever whichever company lasts the longest uh and can serve can survive is going to be there and be the big winner i believe and uh personally i hope that's collectible i know rally does collectible does sports cards and memorabilia rally does other things as well so these two and i think you need someone else in the space as well to bring more attention to provide options uh, for for the for the participants. So I think having these two companies, and if they can be the ones that last, I think I, I think that that'll be a, two good companies to service the the needs of hobbyists and, and investors, collectors who want to you know kind of dabble in the in this market in that in that format. So another, you know, you mentioned uh, and we talk about there being multiple marketplaces, you know as of recent we have seen you know because of the way the hobby blew up in 2020 2021 we've seen a proliferation of new marketplaces and vaulting services come into play and you know you mentioned trading apple on different exchanges there's always it's tough now with day traders and and you know like just in time data to to find arbitrage uh but you know, with, with this, this proliferation of marketplaces, vaulting services in our hobby, do you think that it's, is it good or bad that we're seeing so many different places that are selling these high-end collectibles and assets? And I mean, listen, I'm going to kind of make this a loaded question, but, you know, for me, I look at it and I think, I can't keep my eyes on every auction house, every marketplace to know what's available. Therefore, that, that reduces demand. I'm sure I'm not alone. So, yeah, is this an is this an issue? Is it going to become an issue or will there be some sort of aggregation tool that comes out? How do we how does the hobby maintain it and, and these investments? How do they maintain their values while it's being kind of diluted through all these marketplaces?
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned vaulting, which I feel like has become sort of table stakes for a lot of companies. Um you mentioned you know, hopefully, there's some tools that we can provide in our future that will help people look across auction houses, for example, make that experience better and easier. Because um, you know, there there is a lot for for uh, cards alone. It, you know, there, there's auction houses, there's Pwcc Marketplace, there's there's Alt, there's My Slabs, and of course, uh, big dog. There's even uh, so, it is a lot to check and track. Um, I think tools for finding and making that experience better, uh, or certainly it's something that, you know, we're taking a long, hard look at. Um, but you know, it, it's, we've seen some marketplaces come and go as part of this boom, unfortunately. And, and we'll see, I I think many or at least several, uh, marketplaces succeed. And, um, ultimately that, you know, for us, that's a great thing. Uh, we're, we're, we're a third party we're, we're agnostic we you know we're, we're we're of the mind that rising tide lifts all ships and that's truly what we put out you know with, with the content that we provide and tools we provide um but yeah I, I i you know the collector sympathizes as far as having to track a lot of different places
0: yeah, yeah. no, know for sure for sure i want to go to a couple of comments that have come in uh, John makes, a, I think, a great comment here. It says daily trading of small quantities of shares cannot accurately price an underlying asset. And that that, that comment has to do with just sort of the low secondary market uh, volume on these assets on, on the exchanges. And he, he's right. But <laughs> the thing is, is that this should actually, I would think, this should actually attract more people to the platform because when you have lower volume, you have lower prices. It's just a, it's again, a simple economics, supply and demand. So there are opportunities to buy units of these assets on collectible, for example, at a discount to recent comps. And if, and when these assets are sold to, you know, somebody comes along and makes a buyout offer, you know, the voters aren't going to vote to accept something that is significantly less than what you would expect based on recent comps. So I think, uh, you know, John's comment is exactly is exactly right. And because I think we're so early in the lifespan of this niche, these niche platforms within collectibles and investing, there can be some good benefits out there for people who are paying attention to it. I always like to point people out to one of my favorite podcasts called The 615 Collector. And uh, these guys are always they're always talking about on their on their weekly podcast kind of what. Assets are trading below comps on collectible. They they do like to focus on collectible. Uh, another comment from John here, he says, focused platform like Rares and collectible will have a harder time surviving long-term. Uh, platforms that are more diversified will last longer. So I actually don't know why I completely agree with that. And the reason why is because, you know, speaking about, I don't even know what Rares is, but speaking about collectible, I think about eBay. eBay is a massive marketplace with a, a massive amount of, of verticals, yet they could probably survive only on sports cards, which is their, their biggest vertical sports cards and memorabilia is such a, a big business that I do think that a, a focused platform like collectible is poised to last quite a while. Whereas I don't know if you could do that with, with, you know, uh, just video games or other type of collectibles that are not quite as frequently traded, but who knows that's, that's just my thought right there. Uh, do you want to comment on that at all, Russ?
1: Yeah, well, I would say, um, hey John, how are you? John? John's been a, a great advocate for for fractional marketplaces. Uh, before before I even started Alton, John was investing in the cars on rally. and um, you know, one of the good guys who who truly gets it, uh, totally agree with uh, you know, I, I see his comment about the long term time horizon, the the daily trading in small quantities doesn't accurately uh, reflect the price one hundred percent true um so look I, you know agree that the, the the market size for sports collectibles is massive um and you've also seen collectible uh uh dead stock pair of sneakers speaking of rares which is a platform focused on um, dead stock sneaker fractional fractional shares and dead stock sneakers uh you know so you've even seen collectibles start to branch up some new stuff um but you know that I, I tend to agree that um, I think there's a few asset classes such as sports collectibles that uh, um, hold a lot, of, you know, to your point, hold a lot of of weight. But um, I understand the need for diversification
0: as well. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, and we'll go to Tom's Thomas Peterson's comment right here. He says that for sports assets, there are cards and there are memorabilia. I completely agree with this. Do you think one has a better future than the other? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to put it to you, Russ. I, I'll put it to you. I mean, I've got, I have got I know what I like better, but uh, what do you think? You're, you're going to take a much more objective angle than I would. Yeah,
1: I mean, impossible to predict the better future. I'll say that right now, um, game worn and game used memorabilia is definitely having a moment. Um, Just a quick note from our our Q2 Sports Collectibles Market Report, uh, which, by the way, it's on our site under Learn. Go to Research Reports and pull that up. 68 pages of of goodness on on what's going on in sports collectibles markets. Uh, But listen to these stats. There were 223% more six-figure game-worn game sales in Q2 22 than in Q2 21. And the value of the top 25 sales of game worn game use was up 224 percent over last year. Um, clearly having a moment. Uh, understand that um, you know that's unlike cardboard. That that piece of memorabilia is tied to a specific moment, which is uh, massive and tr- m- truthfully, it's more unique. Uh, but I think I think a lot of people will and will always still gravitate to the cardboard. Uh, you know it there's standardization around it there's uh similar scarcity even if it's not quite down to the single event level um and if you love it you love it so you know you're probably not changing your tune from memorabilia or two memorabilia from sports cards but um impossible to predict i would say um but you know we've seen a pullback in sports cards since 2020 2021 uh it seems like sports memorabilia is definitely having a moment
0: yeah, I'm not going to go ahead and make a prediction either. I just know that everything is cyclical, including sports cards, memorabilia. Maybe sometimes they do flow in tandem. Sometimes they can veer away from each other. For me, it's it's sports cards. I don't collect memorabilia. I th- I'm 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 intrigued by it, but I just it, it comes down to how do you how do you display it. You know, I'd am I'm, I'm just I'm just a card guy. Uh, simple as that, really. Uh, let's go to Wolford's comment right here. He says, how do we feel about original owners of a given good, a given item or asset retaining a percentage of ownership pre-IPO, essentially using fractionalization to access liquidity, rebalance risk, potentially reattain, et cetera. I mean, I'm going to go first on this one, Russ. And I'll just say, I actually gain confidence in the asset when I see that the, own, the original owner or the consigner to collectible retains equity. I think I just, I like when they do that it's it's I think it's kind of neat and I don't think there's anything wrong personally with retaining ownership and 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 you know having a, a a liquidity event on whatever portion of the asset that they're willing to move on from what what do you think
1: Yeah the I think there there are two sides to that coin um obviously it makes the asset a little less liquid which which is not ideal um I think as long as uh, you know, obviously it needs to be, the ownership state needs to be less than the majority, uh, in my mind for that to make any sense. But other than that, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. I think there's, like I said, two sides to that argument. One could be that you're still bullish on the asset, but you do want some short-term liquidity. Uh, and, and the other would be that, you know, more of like a, you know, uh, uh, ulterior motive, let's say, uh, which, we, you know, we've seen come up and, and I'm with you, Jeremy, I, I don't really, I don't see it as that. I see it as a, a net positive.
0: Yeah, I kind of look at it as a co-ownership arrangement. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in many other areas of of the economy, you know, timeshares and, and other other things, even even just the stock market. I mean, the stock market is fractional. Land banking is fractional. There are other fra- the fractional, it exists in, in most segments of the of investment so it doesn't uh offend me whatsoever um a couple comments here we have punt pass click says it seems like the missing link to fractional are road shows that show off these pieces i think there's some merit to that you know going around showing these showing off all these assets that are there to generate some excitement would likely be he goes on to say eyeballs would help drive awareness tell story drive price action revenues from ticket sales could provide dividend to shareholders i mean i don't know if that's legal not legal if the SEC would approve because because i know collectible is regulated by the SEC to an extent i think that's a great idea at, at first glance what do you think yeah i mean the art lending business is is
1: a massive business and there's in, in my mind you know I, i'm not I'm not collectible or, or any fractional Marketplace's legal team, uh, so I can't speak on that. But I think that that has legs to it. I think that's a great idea. I think um, there could be collectibles lending businesses that, you know, whether it's a company that wants to rent a card for a private event, uh, whether it's an antiques roadshow type, you know, ticketed event, great, provide provide dividends to the shareholders of the asset.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. John makes a comment, unpopular opinion I don't like retained equity. They hold too much control with buyout offers. Yeah, I mean, that, there's a good point made right there. And I think, like you said before, Russ, it depends what that what that retained equity is. And you know, exactly. if it's over, if it's over the majority, they well, they have not too much control. All the control, um, especially, you know, I'm not, and I forget what it is. Is it in order to accept the offer? Is it is it a sixty? Is it two thirds? Is it eighty percent? But if a retained owner has though that amount of votes required to control the buyout, they're accepting or rejecting the buyout, then yes, I completely agree. Everyone else is just along for the ride and at that person's mercy. So great point there. Yeah. Again, by John, who goes on to say, we need the rally store open with my Aston Martin on display. Okay, yeah, very good. And one more comment here by Wolford says, I could see it being a healthy force for adoption if negotiation of said IPO splits are liberally negotiable for all who are partnering rather than privately selling into company holdings. Um any comment on any comment on Wolford's uh post here, Russ?
1: Yeah, look, I think that I think that we haven't seen the end of, of when it comes to retained ownership. I, I don't think we've seen the end of, of how that model will continue to evolve and how voting shares should count. Um, we're just now starting to see IPO stock splits. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if that's done on a, on a share, l- let's see how it plays out. I mean, I'm I, I don't like I provided my opinion on retained ownership. I do understand the duality of the motive and some people don't like that. Uh, and that's understandable. But I think it all comes back to at the end of the day, these platforms are an exchange. They're providing a service. It's a free market. No one is telling you that you need to invest in any of this. Uh, if there's something you like that you're bullish on, particularly the long term, then I think fractional is a great option.
0: Yeah, makes good sense to me. Uh, Mid-Atlantic wants to know, in the absence of a buyout offer, can a shareholder propose that an item be put up for auction and force a shareholder vote? I was thinking about that earlier today, uh, Mid-Atlantic and Russ, and I, I think you know makes logical sense to me. I don't know what the rule is what the terms and conditions are on these IPOs. So, you know, feel free to reach out to someone from Collectible to ask directly yourself. Uh, I just don't know the answer. Russ, do you know the answer? Um, not at the moment. Yeah.
1: You know, there, there, there's merit to, I think we have seen a shareholder vote to bring, uh, I think it was, a, it was a, it was basketball, but I forget what it was. It didn't meet the, um, uh, it, did, it didn't meet the the, price that it would need to at auction in order to be sold. Uh, but I think Collectible did explore this for a while.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. Um, very good stuff right there. Uh, so you have worked, uh, you being Alton Insights and Collectible, have recently put together an integration between the two systems. And you did send me a video that I could play. Uh, should, I, should I play this now just to show how a, someone who has a, pl- a portfolio on Collectible can download a CSV with their holdings, upload it to upload it into the Alton Insights platform and get data and charts and all this. Would you like me to play the video? Does, does, yeah, does that, that make sense right now?
1: That would be awesome.
0: Okay, so I'm going to do this, everybody. Please uh, check this out. And Russ, I think we shouldn't talk. We might talk over it. So here we go, everybody. So a nice little uh, tutorial that's available on YouTube as well. If anyone wants to go watch that again, if you're gonna, if you have a portfolio on Collectible and you want to upload it to Alton, what do they do, Russ? They they do what you saw there. But you can see this video on YouTube. Is that a, on on Alton Insights uh, YouTube channel or Collectibles?
1: Uh, I know it's on Collectibles. Um, I'm happy to share the link after the show. Um, we're we're pumped about this feature. So look, I know you know, downloading a CSV and uploading it. Um, First off, taking a step back, uh, the industry is early in the sense. Um, This is the first portfolio syncing that a marketplace has done. um, And it's the first syncing that we've done. Um, And that's awesome. So first off, thanks, Ryan and and Brandon for that video. Uh, But, you know, we are early here. We're hoping eventually that that will be a nice plan, like syncing, just like you would sync Your bank account, you would sign into your investment accounts, you can upload them to Alton, you know, you can track your holdings across these marketplaces in Alton. Um, So it's an awesome feature, you know, it's something that uh, I've been thinking about since day one. Um, So pumped, you know, in any form that it's it's come, uh, pumped to share
0: that with our, our users. Right on. Well, congratulations on the first integration like that to you and Collectible. I think it It shows some foresight and just, you know, again, keeping your foot on the gas and looking to move this thing forward and be innovative. So, congratulations to both of you. A quick thank you to John Shuck for joining today. And uh, Tom Peterson wants to know are there fees to use Alton Insights? No, No fees. There are no fees to use Alton Insights. Awesome. Great. Okay. So, usually, and we're going to do this a little bit later. But uh, what I often, what I, what I al- always do on Collectible Live is in the latter part of the show, we talk about some of the assets that are either IPOing or trading on the Collectible platform. But because tonight's guest was somebody who analyzes this stuff, I said to, I said to you the other day, I said maybe you could pick a couple assets that you have a few things that you'd like to t- speak to that you've done some research on. And so you did. So we're gonna run through a couple of these. Um, you know, we're we're at the 48 minute mark. We got about 12 minutes till we're at an hour. We can go over time a little bit, Russ, but I want to go through these, give you the chance to speak to them and uh, and then we're going to talk very uh, briefly about three of the assets that are coming up on the platform as well. Uh before we get into all of that, Wolford makes the comment such a golden era for aggregate evolution and a big congrats. Yeah, I agree with with both of those with both of those uh comments. Thank you, Wolford. So The first one, which we've already shown once during the episode, is this PSA 7, 1952 Tops Mickey Mantle. Now, for anyone who's watching that may not, you know, again, welcome to anybody who's watching on LinkedIn and on Twitch. This is the first time I've ever streamed to those platforms. Russ, we have a a PSA 7 is a near mint. The 7 equates to a near mint card. If you're looking at your screen, you can see above the number 7, it says NM on the PSA label. That means near mint. This is a beautiful card. Most people will recognize it. To me, it is the most iconic card in the whole hobby. Russ, what did you want to tell us about this PSA 7, 52 tops Mickey Mantle that is currently trading on the secondary market of of the Collectible platform?
1: Yeah, I think, well, also Collectible has both the PSA 7 and PSA 8 on their platform. Uh, PSA 7 um, is trading, I think, above, um, just above 300K, um, the, the eight, I think is up to, here we go, 321 K for the seven, uh, it's up seven and a half percent since the IPO, uh, the eight market cap, I believe is 1.3 million. It's up 169%. Um, you know, we, we did a whole study, some other sales that have just come up for this card in the past two weeks, uh, REA, obviously, you know, the heritage auction was live, but REA had a sale of an SGC5 on August 14th. Uh, Card sold for $306,000. Shattered the last sale of $204,000 from six months prior for that grade. Uh, there was also records for the seven and a half, PSA seven and a half, and PSA three and a half, um, 705,000 87,000. So, um, you know, Dylan actually put together an in-depth analysis on this, but um, after the Jan 21 private sale of $5.2 million for a PSA 9 mantle, it did lift the entire market for other grades of the card. Um, on average, the next sale, sale uh, across grades was 109%, um, higher than the sale of that same grade immediately preceding the $5.2 million sale. Um, and as of late July, all, all across grades, this card was up 125%. So, you know, when you get a, a result like this, th- there are only so many 1952 mantles in, in this type of quality. Um, again, w- we don't give recommendations, but uh, it's exciting to have an opportunity to invest in these cards is, is uh, you know, my opinion on that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how the fractional market reacts to that sale.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, give investment advice either um i will however say that this card so this is the psa 7 this is the near mint copy on on collectible and i'll flip forward two slides here's the psa 8 this one is is ranked as a near mint to mint so you know a, a very strong card these are both beautiful copies i would be ecstatic to own either of them and this car this 52 jobs mickey mantle is considered the mona lisa of the sports card hobby, it is widely considered the most beautiful card in the hobby. And I'm not gonna argue with that. Although I will say the 53 Willie Mays is my favorite favorite uh, vintage card of all time, just as far as how it looks. And it's not, not a rookie card or anything, but in any event, these are amazing cards. And uh, I thank you for your commentary on them. The next item that you called my attention to was this photograph here, which is actually the photograph that was used for Lou Gehrig's rookie card. So if I can zoom a little bit here, this says it's a news service photograph. It's a type three photo. It's authentic from the 1920s. It's Lou Gehrig. It's a Keystone from the Keystone View Company, a 25 exhibit image. I don't know what all that means. Uh, I know some of it means not all of it, but what would you like to tell us about this photograph whose shares are trading on the collectible platform?
1: yeah i would just say that broadly speaking um you know i like the theme for uh, the theme here is vintage um but vintage photos check a lot of the boxes right there's uh true scarcity and rarity Uh, there's a mix of art and photography and sports um and they seem to get overlooked just because people are so excited about the car that this photo ended up turning into Uh, which is understandable to a degree but uh, you know, we, we've seen some nice sales. a uh, Ty Cobb, 1910, 1912 original photo um, used for his 1914 Cracker Jack card just sold that Heritage for over half, just over half a million dollars. Um, I think there's a nice movement for original photographs that uh, you know, true collectors are. It, it, it kind of goes back to that memorabilia um, comment that your conversation from earlier, and just that. There are so many, so much less of these. Uh, and it's it, you know, it's tied to a specific photograph and and time. And um, you know, if you're if you're a collector, you, you you're probably geeking out about photographs right about now.
0: Yeah, there's been lots of action on photographs lately. We've had other uh I, other photographs IPO'd on the platform, other uh, you know, experts in the space come on this show, come on collectible live and talk about them. And uh, you know, they're very they're they're great. I have nothing against photographs, but I'm a card guy. Just like I'm not a mem guy, I'm a card guy. So I'm going to stick to cards, and that's you know, hey, that's uh, that's how you you have to approach this hobby in a way that makes sense to you. Uh, thanks for those comments on on the on on the Lou Gehrig photo, Russ. Before we get to the next ones, I just want to uh, Nick Chen, thanks for your comment. Uh, we did talk about all this already, so please do rewind or watch it uh, in fast. Watch it at a higher speed. Again, and you'll see all you'll see everything it was addressed that is in your your comment there. Joe Perot, great to see you as always. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, you're behind the eight ball, Nick, but don't worry, we did address all of those uh, comments that you made. So the next item, Russ, that you wanted to call some attention to is this bat. This is a Jimmy Fox game used bat. Shares of this are trading on the collectible platform. What can you tell us or set some context for the for game used bats?
1: Yeah, both the Sadaharu O bat as well. Um, I think it's more generally wanted to chat. Both of these bats are up uh, over forty percent in the last month of trading on un- collectible. I sort of, you know, clearly someone has a has a thesis around uh, long term holding of of game use memorabilia. Um, Jimmy's bat is up a kind of a conservative ten percent from IPO, and the Sadaharu, obviously less known Japanese player. Uh, down, I think about nine percent from the IPO. You know, I would just say I, I rattled off some stats about game used earlier, and uh, I think vintage game use is, is really exciting, uh, and and we're seeing that in auction results. Um, you know, again, these are these are scarce assets, and uh, that's all I'll say. Again, no no recommendations here, but um, game use is clearly having a.
0: Yeah, those are some definitely some really neat pieces, and it, you know it's like real estate—they're not making these anymore. Especially when we're talking about players who were playing, you know, pre-World War II. Like this is this is ancient stuff, and uh, so you only really have one chance to get a piece of these things, and and it might just be that they're on a fractional platform like collectible, and that's where you have to go to get it to get uh, to be able to invest in them and have that pride of ownership that comes along with being able to show a picture to your. To your friends and say you know i i own a couple shares in this thing that that can be a, a fun way to start a conversation with with your friends and, and that sort of thing okay the last thing we're going to do is there are a couple of ipos that are um well there's one ipo that's going coming out of early access this week and there are two that have some shares remaining that i want to bring up so the first one we've talked about it before is this 1981 wayne gretzky sports illustrated this is a newsstand copy, not a subscription copy, a, a distinction that I only recently really learned was important, meaning mm-hmm. there's no there's no uh, an address label that was ever affixed to this, which I think is a nice thing uh, you don't have that extra glue marks or anything. This is a nice newsstand copy. It's Wayne Gretzky's first copy ever. It's a CGC 9.4, which is a high grade for any magazine or comic book. It is. Being offered at a market cap of $37,500, 0% is retained, and 35.4% still remains to, for subscription, meaning that if I do the math quickly, 64.6% of the shares of this, of this collectible, this asset, this Wayne Gretzky Sports Illustrated magazine have been sold. Um, I think it's a beautiful cover, makes a great display piece. I don't know how it ranks among other magazines too well. I think I think it's priced quite aggressively, but leave it to everybody to make up their mind on if you want to invest in this Wayne Gretzky magazine, 35.4% of the shares do remain. The other one that where IPO is open, shares remaining is this right here. This is the Jason Tatum uh, 2017 Panini Flawless Gold Rookie Patch Auto. It is in gem mint condition as as uh, described by Beckett Grading Services, it is a 9.5, only 10 copies were ever made, and it is being offered at a market cap of $56,000, with 17.9% being retained. So, you know, not a not a huge amount being retained, but something, I like that the owner, the consigner has some skin in the game still, and 32.5% of the shares still remain. Now, before I move on to the IPO coming uh, out of early access this week, Ross, I'll put it to you. Anything you'd like to say about either this Wayne Gretzky magazine or this Jason Tatum RPA, rookie patch auto? Uh,
1: man. So I'll, I'll say this on the Gretzky. We, we did just see a couple of nice sales. Uh, the first Muhammad Ali Sports Illustrated cover, um, the chosen one, LeBron's first cover from high school. Probably if you're listening if, or if you saw a photo of that, you remember what it looks like. Um you know, I think there's mid twenties of, of the pop of the LeBron that just had a nice sale. The Gretzky, I believe, is pop two. Um, you know, I think it's it it is priced higher than m- recent. You know, there aren't many recent sales, but I, I agree with you. I think it's priced somewhat aggressively, but at the same time, as I've said throughout the show, if you're investing in anything on fractional, you should be bullish on it for the long term. So, um, and yeah, the the newsstand is is obviously you know those those sell for. Those those are the collectible copies, um, both across comic books and Sports Illustrated. Um, this is a nice example.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want something in my collection that has some stranger's name on it. Really, just like I don't want a I don't want to get an autographed eight by ten that was made out to you know Henry Smith, who I have no idea who that is. I'll just I'll, I'd rather one without that sort of inscription. Uh, well, thank you for that. I do think like this is a beautiful piece. There's no doubt. And if you are going in with that long-term horizon, then maybe the offering price is more palatable than, you know, if you're comparing it to recent magazines that have comped out. Uh, and then the Tatum, of course, as well. Uh, before we get on to the final asset I want to look at, I just do want to bring on John. Makes a John says, I'll post a recommendation since these guys won't. Stick with Hall of Fame players. And let me tell you, I can easily get behind that recommendation, John. So it's been great having you tonight, by the way. I hope you come back on future episodes of Collectible Live and provide your commentary, um, and we'll have Russ again on again eventually. Uh, the last item that I want to just mention quickly are is this, and we did look at them before because this is dead stock. This is these are Michael Jordan 1985 Nike Air One Air Jordan Ones. Again, there it's a dead stock player sample. Comes with the box. Comes with the original tissue. One shoe is a size 13. The other is a 13 and a half. These were meant for Michael himself. These are being offered at a market cap of $126,750. $126,750. 9.1% is being retained by the consigner. Under 10%. I have no issue with that whatsoever. And these are going live on re- as a regular offering on the collectible platform. Uh, tomorrow, September 1st at 8 p.m eastern so with that russ i want to thank you for joining episode we are in episode 43 of collectible live i believe next week's episode will be the one-year anniversary since we started doing this show on nice. sundays this is a special night i've been doing some travel i was at the burbank show this last weekend in california and uh you know was at the national a couple of weeks before so i wanted to fit in a special episode here on wednesday night So I do thank you for joining Russ Um, and to the chat. Thanks everyone in the chat. If you want to make any final comments, get them in right away. Russ, parting words from you and then we're going to end this thing. Thanks Jeremy. Congrats on your recent news
1: and uh, it was fun. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, uh, And with that, nothing else coming in from the chat. So thanks everyone. Have a great rest of your week. We will be back on Sunday with another episode of Collectible Live. Justin, Vic, thank you so much. This episode is over.